I sent out a note yesterday afternoon and talked a little bit about, about some of the things I'll comment here in terms of what's going on in our world. But we live in a, a turbulent nation and world. I think that goes without saying. It seems that hardly a day goes by without that being made abundantly clear with what is going on in our world today, with the news headlines, the evening news that seems to highlight man's inhumanity to man. And I thought yesterday we watched the evening news and just the whole series, the introduction of the broadcast, the first minute or so, just highlights the things are going to be covered. And it was just like a tsunami of sorts of bad news and talking about the difficulties going on in our world. And if you look at the last couple of weeks, uh, perhaps the incredible disaster, if you will, and tragedy in Uvalde, Texas, and then this this past week, just a couple of days ago, this semi-trailer was parked or left by the road, and 53 Human beings died because the traffickers, the human traffickers, trying to find a way to bring in immigrants, they ended up dying because they were left by the roadside with no heat, no, I mean, no, no air conditioning, no ventilation, and they died from the heat. And, of course, that's big news. But those two things alone just will look at our tragedies that strike our nation and... Those are big, big news items, and they may not, they won't fade totally uh, from the news, but there'll be other big news items that will be the front page headlines, so to speak, or the lead stories on our, our newscast. It's uh, just a long, every day a litany of what goes on in our world. And at least on this, it's just NBC, not that it's a plug, but uh Every newscast in the evening, they, they end with a, an, what is to be in a moment of an, an inspiring story. And it, it's almost, to me, sometimes it seems like it's sort of an emotional sedative <laughs> given to the, the listeners after hearing 25 or 27 minutes of terrible news about the world in which we live. And as I said, we made similar comments and some observations in the, in the note yesterday afternoon. And I'm saying these things, not that it's going to be the topic of the sermon by any means, but it does remind me that, again, we, in a couple of days we'll be celebrating, as Mr. Lyons mentioned, our the anniversary, the memorial of our birth of freedom. And... It is a time to be excited and certainly a time for us to be grateful for the nation in which we live and the blessings that we enjoy and we know why we have those blessings. But nonetheless, it's a pretty interesting deal because we have this name of the United States of America. Uh, but I guess sometimes we just call it America and everybody knows what that means. And yet you watch the news and you read, uh, you watch the news on, on the web or whatever, and often we are depicted as a nation, we're depicted as this outline of blue states and red states. And never the twain will meet. And it's almost like we're the disunited states of America. Because of the social and political conflicts that are going on and raging across our country. That united hardly seems appropriate to describe the, our nation. And Christ made a statement about this. Let's turn over to Mark chapter 3 about a nation such as ours. Mark chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Here Christ had been accused by the religious leaders of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Christ then explains in verse 24... If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Verse 25, and if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. 
We don't know what will unfold in our nation in the years ahead exactly. But we certainly can't anticipate right now a spirit of unity, a spirit of oneness, a spirit of being united, that the conflict is there and raging maybe in some ways more so than it ever has. Uh, it, it is interesting, though, if you read much of American history, that this is not new. It just it seems more more serious right now. But there were great social conflicts before, uh, certainly before the Civil War. That seemed to resolve one to a degree, but have left has left lots of scars that are, with which we're still dealing. But our nation, our nation is not the kind of society that God wants for His people. Or his kingdom. Not now, not ever. He is not interested in a United States of America as it currently exists or any other nation around the world. God would not tolerate that kind of conflict, whether it be in division, whether it's social or whether it's actually military conflict. But God is a God of unity. And I want to talk about that this afternoon. And in Please put the sermon in context. This is not to say certainly that as a congregation we're not united. I think there's a lot of unity in this particular congregation. But just a reminder of just how important that is for us to work toward, maintain, nurture amongst ourselves. I want to review what God's, how God's, his favor for unity. What does serve to diminish it? And we have to be aware of those things. What is the source, ultimate source of unity? And understand the importance that God places on it among his people. Let's turn back to the book of Psalms. Psalm 133. This particular psalm is often referred to as at the Feast of Tabernacles because it is what would uh, the 14th psalm that is part of what's called the psalms of ascent leading up from uh, the day of atonement up to the feast of tabernacles this was uh, written or it's often quoted on the 14th day but it's also referenced just because of what it says here in verses verse 1 but we'll read all three verses it's a very very short psalm verse 1 says behold and at least one, one of the commentaries I've read said that sometimes that word itself is used as a way of pointing toward a holy day, a holy time, like the feast is. It said, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. To be united, to be of one, one mind, one, one culture, one way of life. Now, I want to go through this a little bit. These these are pretty simple verses, really. But I had never taken the time to understand the metaphors behind uh, what, what is given in verses 2 and 3. We can see here in verse 1, God says unity is a good thing. That's a trait of God. It's a point that's good. And how pleasant it is and how much harmony, how much peace exists when they're is unity among the people, among his people, among anyone, for that matter. For brethren, then, to dwell together in unity. He says in verse 2, he comes now to a metaphor. He says here, it's like the head of the, it's like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. Now that's a, uh, if you wanted to visualize that, it seems a bit messy. <laughs> uh, you know, it, uh, you remember the old commercials when we were younger about bro cream? <laughs> Little devil do you? You know, it's like you've been greased down, you know, at, at the, uh, for those of us that uh, were alive at that time and practicing the uh, hairstyles of the time. But that sounds a little bit, a little bit, uh, uh, unkempt, perhaps. But, I do want to uh, to point out uh, what's important about this. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 30. And what God is trying to 
demonstrate or illustrate, talking about this. Exodus chapter 30, verse 22. So we're talking about this holy anointing oil that is used part of the the example there in, in Psalm 133. And what that uh, what that oil was like, what that anointment was like. It says, Moreover, the Eternal said to Moses, saying, Also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, that's 250 shekels worth, and I don't know how uh, we enjoy the fragrance of cinnamon. We make uh, cinnamon rolls. Uh, cinnamon bread, and it is a fragrant, fragrant, nice, fragrant smell. And also here you take 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane. It said 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, anointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. Now, I, I've never smelled anything that with that combination of ingredients, per se, but it says here you take all of those ingredients and you blend them a certain way, and it says according to the art of the perfumer. Now, that means there's that means someone who understood how to mix these things up. You know, we, we have companies making lots of money today producing perfume or cologne, trying to create some sort of liquid that gives a a nice, uh, pleasant, uh, attractive uh, smell to someone. It says here, this art, so then we know that there were talented men in Israel. God gave certain gifts, even when he told Moses how the tabernacle was going to be built. He said, "I've I've given the spirit of artisanship to this individual. The skills were there. And so there was a purpose behind the blend here because God was creating something, uh, giving a recipe, if you will, for something that would be very, very pleasant. And so when he writes this scripture right here that uh, this is to be used and that the unity of his people, but like this, this fragrant smell of what was this holy anointing oil. That had to be, we, we can again visualize, uh, it would be a little bit messy, but it had to be a very special occasion for God to do those things that way. And it was used exclusively for the tabernacle service and later for the temple. Didn't have any other use but that one occasion, very special oil. If we did just a couple of verses later, that, uh, you know, if, it, if anyone used it for personal use, they'd be cut off from the people. So God set that apart for very special use. And then in, in uh, verse 34, it says, The Eternal said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stack and onica and galbanum, I think it is, and pure frankincense with these sweet spices, and there shall be equal amounts of each. And you shall make of these an, an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer again, salted, pure and holy. And you shall be some of it very fine and put it before the the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. But as for the incense, which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be holy for the eternal. So they couldn't share that recipe, if you will. That, That was not for common use. And again, this was for the incense. This was the sweet incense, special blend of spices that were to be burned. And, and you can, uh, if, you, if you like this sort of thing, you can buy these things today that, that incense to give a fragrance to your home. Nothing's new about that. But, again, this was to be used at tabernacle service and at the, the temple. Very special occasion. So when God says that he's, he wants these things done this way, then tells us that unity is pictured by this as poetic, if you will. That might sound, I'll I'll comment on that again in just a moment. That might sound 
that is God's word, God's way of illustrating something that is very precious in his sight. That for his people to have a spirit of unity is really important to him. So go down to uh, verse 3, and there's another another illustration. He says this, this oh, unity is like the dew of Hermon, or Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Eternal commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now just to, uh, to comment that uh, the mountains of Zion, at least based upon the commentaries that I've read, that this is not talking about Mount Zion in particular, but actually refers to a different mountain. It's, elsewhere it's called Sion, S-I-O-N, that based on the, the books, again, the, the commentaries, was a very uh, beautiful area and was uh, blessed with a lot of dew, very special special environment. So God is pointing out here that this, this idea of unity among his people He's using these illustrations to show that how important, how precious it is. Now, again, we might think, well, this, this, there are maybe more dramatic examples in, in the Bible. Maybe there are. But I just thought it was interesting that he would use this to talk about how, how this is important to him because it is a, a matter of the senses. You know, God has given us this sense of smell. And I think all of us are, most of the time, <laughs> but we, we're glad for that. We enjoy, whether it be, you know, as a kid, you come in the house and you smell the fragrance, if you will, of mom making fresh baked bread or having, knowing there's a cake in the oven. Or you come home from work and your wife has prepared your special dish. <laughs> it's like, you know, well, what's... What's special about today? Well, just want to let you know I love you. <laughs> but uh, we have this sense of smell, and we, there, we have five of them, but the smell is a wonderful gift. Now, there are times we use it to, uh, we don't, maybe smell cells aren't so good. We smell gas in the house. We know we're warned by it. But in general, we think about smell being a very nice thing, fragrance that we enjoy. And God says unity is really, really special to him. And I, I suppose for, you know, I, I, uh, I was thinking about talking to this, about this last week. Uh, I didn't go to the men's training camp, but I thought that here it's men's training camp. And I was going to talk about this, uh, uh, this, this psalm and just say, look, look, as you men become men, you can take this poetic piece and pour, put, put, put that in addition to your manliness. So anyway, God uses something very poetic, I think, to, to point this out. It is really important for God, to God, for us to be of one mind, to be united. Now, there are a few things that undermine unity. Now, some of them you know. Let's look at a couple of them. Let's turn over to Proverbs. Proverbs is pretty much replete with warnings about, about matters like this. In Proverbs 16, I mean, I'm sorry, Proverbs 6, verse 16. It says, These six things the eternal hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. In verse 19, a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among brethren. So God warns us about what we say, to where, first of all, it should be truthful, and lying leads to certainly break up, to disunion, opposite of unity. And, of course, verse 19, one who sows discord among brethren, the clear opposite of unity, tearing brethren Apart. Then over in Proverbs 16, verse 28, Proverbs 16, verse 28, A perverse man sows strife, 
And the whisperer separates the best of friends. So we're warned not to be a whisperer. We're warned about sowing strife, the very opposites of unity. And it is just a reminder that all of us need to pay due attention to what we say, how we say it, so that we don't we don't hurt feelings of someone else, we don't sow discord, we don't separate ourselves from friends, perhaps. We don't do that. The words, the wrong words, the improper words, the unnecessary sometimes, unnecessary words that undermine unity. Now, there are a couple of them here in Proverbs that give a contrast to look at the negative and the, the positive. Let's turn back to, to uh, or over to uh, Proverbs, back to Proverbs 11. Proverbs 11, verse 13. It says, A talebearer reveals secrets. That's separating friends, perhaps. Talking about things that really are not anyone else's business. Not, not his business or her business. But reveals secrets. But he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. And this idea of revealing secrets is saying something negative about someone. But a faithful spirit conceals these things. So God shows us there is a contrast to what the right words produce unity. The right words protect one another. In uh, Proverbs 15, verse 18, Verse 18 says, a wrathful man stirs up strife. Someone who has a problem with anger and uncontrolled anger also leads to uncontrolled words as well as some physical matters, but stirs up strife. But he who is slow to anger allays contention. Doesn't mean he doesn't ever get upset, but it's at the right time, maybe in the right way, in the right level, and to control one's emotions allays contention, prevents conflict, and sows unity, if you will. So the contrast is given to us here. In chapter 50, uh, see, uh, chapter 50, we just read 15, verse 8, 18. And then a, a negative over in chapter 26. That again, we don't represent as being amongst us, but a point of God's word nonetheless. Verse 26, or chapter 26, verse 24. It says, though his hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. So hatred can lead to lying and Separation of friends can lead to a matter of the opposite of being united. So controlling our, our words and our emotions appropriately and being careful about what we say and how we say it in order to make sure we promote unity and harmony amongst ourselves. Let's turn over to James chapter 3 because James has quite a bit to say about this. Another element, just a matter of what we might or might not say. James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 to begin with. Verse 9, with it we bless our God and Father, and with it, referring to the tongue, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. That just depending on the circumstance, we feel righteous when we say something good, and yet it hits into honor God, maybe in our prayer, and yet we will allow ourselves to say something negative about a human, another human being. Verse 9, we read, verse 10, 
Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. We do not want to be two-faced about it, how we say things. We want to make sure that we what we say is positive. And then he mentions here in verse 14 why sometimes we might succumb to this. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. So sometimes we are, perhaps we are guilty of envy of one another for whatever reason. We might have some self-promoting activity or words. We might be uh, asserting ourselves or putting ourselves forward for, for, again, for whatever reason. Not with great intent uh, and motive, but nonetheless, the envy will cause us to do things that are not appropriate. And envy will cause division. It tears down relationships. It's hard to be close to someone if we are envious of him or her. Hard to be close to them. And we begin, envy is a product of sometimes of comparisons. Let's turn back to Second Corinthians chapter 10. Paul talks about this idea of making comparisons amongst ourselves. And he is combating a problem in the Corinthian church that there were some there who were promoting themselves and, let's say, downplaying Paul's role and creating a little bit of perhaps a spiritually elitist environment among some of the brethren there and the, the men that were trying to take to be the dominant influence there. And so Paul points out here in verse 12, he doesn't want to be a part of this. He says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. There are, there are some who are commending themselves, promoting themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. So Paul says, I'm not, I'm not going to be a party to that. And... This is, and I guess the modern term we might say this is, these are individuals that are part of a mutual admiration society. There's some, they want to separate themselves from the average person. And we have those organizations, even in our societies today, where you need a certain amount of money in order to be a part of that group. You need to be, uh, maybe you have these terms, old money and new money. Uh, I lived in Tyler for a good long while, and there were parts of East Texas that had oil money from decades back. And that was the old money. And they had certain activities in town. And then there were the new successful younger generation that apparently making a lot of money, and they were the new money. And uh, for just uh, one part of town, the old money had a country club. And in another part of town, the new, new money had their own country club. Now, they may have cross-populated. I don't know. I wasn't, wasn't part of that. <laughs> and, uh, there was no new money there. I didn't have any new money. <laughs> uh, so, but uh, anyway, it's, uh, it was there. So we have this, this commending ourselves among themselves. And so God, or Paul writes, that's not smart. That's not wise. It leads to a party spirit. And that's what the Corinthian church was experiencing. They were had their... Cliques of sort. And again, some were of Paul, some were of Apollos. And those that were really righteous, they were of Christ. Uh, so they were, they, they grew up breaking up into groups. And they were admiring themselves. And Paul says, that's not wise. Well now, what can happen if we compare ourselves amongst ourselves? I mean, there, really there's two ways, two things can happen. One can get an inferiority complex out of it. If you look around, you know, there's some people who are smarter, they're better looking, they're more successful. It's like, ah, uh, you know, poor me. Or we can do the opposite, that somehow we can find some way to 
criticize the other person, and by putting that person down, we almost automatically seem to elevate ourselves and have some sense of superiority or some sense of being better. Neither of those emotions are right. Or emotions are right. We don't need to compare ourselves among ourselves. We're not competing amongst ourselves. You and I are competing with our own human nature. We're competing against the world. We're competing with Satan himself and all of the wrong influences. Over in 2 Corinthians, again, same chapter, back in verse 5. Here's what we're supposed to be doing, is measuring ourselves against Jesus Christ not in order to become inferior, but to simply be reminding ourselves of what is the goal is to become like Christ, become one with God, become one who has has the mind of God. In verse 5 he says, "We, we should be casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's our target. That's our measuring stick, is how well we are comparing ourselves, how well measuring up to Christ himself, so that we have the mind of Christ. We, we view our, our spirituality against the, back, against the uh, background of what God is trying to develop in us, to become like Jesus Christ. Because as opposed to elevating ourselves and trying to compete for some recognition, perhaps, really what we're trying to, all of us are trying to achieve is to be part of the family of God in God's kingdom. And there isn't just one winner there. There's a whole bunch of things. Go back in John chapter 14. What does he, just a reminder, what does he tell us? In John chapter 14. Verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. There are many offices. There are many positions. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. So our our task is to prepare ourselves for the position that Jesus Christ is preparing for us to carry out in the responsibilities. Many offices. We don't have to have, as Paul does point out elsewhere, that this idea that when we're striving that only one wins the race. Well, that is true of certain physical uh, com- competitions. There's one winner. There's one champion. And usually the runner-up is forgotten pretty quickly. Well, it's pretty interesting. Sometimes even the winner is forgotten pretty quickly. I'm just wondering, how many of you know who won the Super Bowl last year? (laughs) I don't know either. (laughs) I watched it, but I'm not sure who won that. But we're not just one champion. There are many offices, many mansions in which we are striving to fulfill those responsibilities. Over in Mark, Christ points this out in Mark chapter 10. Because even the disciples got a little ahead of themselves at, at one point. A couple of them wanted to be on the right hand, one on the right hand and one on the left hand of Christ himself in his kingdom. They were wanting uh, very special positions. But he warns them, verse 42 and verse 43 in Mark 10. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. They're in it for the position. 
They're in it for the authority. Yet in verse 43 says, Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. So rather than competing with one another, we, if we want to do anything, we want to serve one another. We want to make sure we qualify for the position that Christ has in mind for us to, to fulfill, to be ready to assume that responsibility. So we do not need to worry about what's waiting for us, something very special for every one of us. And God wants us to not compare ourselves among ourselves, but simply strive to be like Jesus Christ. Okay, what about unity itself? What promotes unity? What enables unity? What For us to have this spirit of harmony and peace amongst ourselves. Part of it's pretty obvious. I'm sure you know where I'm headed with this, very likely. Let's turn over to First John chapter 1. First John chapter 1, verse 3. John writes, That which we have seen and heard we declare unto you, or to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So having fellowship with our Father, and with his Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's going to promote oneness in God's people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just again one verse here as well. Verse 9. It says, God is faithful and by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So our fellowship is with the Father and with Christ. That is what is preeminent. If we're going to have his mind and his way of life, then we are going to spend time with our Father and with Jesus Christ in prayer, Bible study, Spending time fellowshipping with God through what we already know, these four basics. We talk about prayer and Bible study, meditation and fasting. But that's when we commune with our Creator. That's when we have a chance to, studying His Word, have His mind. As Mr. Murray used to talk about this, the mind of God in print. That, that His mind, reading those words, Transfer to our minds. And we spend time in prayer talking to God. Maybe expressing the very things he writes. If we go through some of the verses of the Bible, even on our knees, we talk about these things and ask God to put these thoughts into our minds to make sure this is the way we think. This is this becomes the real us, the real me, to think and, and do as Christ does, spending time with him enables that fellowship, enables you and me to have fellowship with one another, to come together. Because people of like mind, we all have the mind of Jesus Christ, people of like mind are going to be in harmony. They're going to be friends. They're going to be praying for one another. They're going to be doing things together. So we are having fellowship with one another through our fellowship with the Father and with Christ. Now, just just a moment. What what makes us brethren? What makes us brothers and sisters in Christ? Of course, it's the Spirit of God that he put in us. He imbued us with his Spirit. He begot us as his children, and we are part of the end of that family. We are Brethren, by virtue of the fact he has given us his spirit. That spirit can give us the same mind. If we fail to maintain close fellowship with God, then it's going to affect 
every other aspect of our lives. Our fellowship with God has to be preeminent and staying close to him will foster and enhance our time together, our fellowship, our unity, our time together. So if that's the case, by extension, we have to consider being together, being here at services. Because if we're brethren, it's important for us to fellowship together. We talk about families spending time together. Well, the family of God should be spending time together, sharing our lives. It's good for us. Over in Hebrews, Scripture, we remind us just how important this is. Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 22 through 25. Verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God is Faithful, he's going to take care of us, will help us. And then let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Our motive, if you will, our purpose for being together is to stir up love and good works. By what we say to each other, by the encouragement, by the example we set, by the prayers we pray for one another by sharing in various functions in the church, activities together, whatever they may be, that God says we should be spending time together. And then, verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more do you see the day approaching. So being together ought to be a source of encouragement, ought to be motivating amongst ourselves and give us additional spiritual strength. And I would think that clearly we see the day approaching. Are we not convinced that we are living at the end of the age? And the day being referred to here is the day that Christ is going to come back, or it could be the time of tribulation. That We see these things approaching. If that's the case, then it's more incumbent upon us to be sharing our life together and to be sure that we're assembling together. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, discusses, just mentions something that is, should have be happening as we come together. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul uses himself as an example, which he did on occasion, that he, he lived in a way that could be an example to those to whom he preached. But he says in verse 17, Brethren, join in me in following my example. And note, take note of those who so walk, even as you have us for a pattern. So we come together and we can see the example, a righteous example of following God's way of life. And that is motivating. It is challenging to be together and know that someone, it's a friend or someone is, has done, you see, you hear their blessings, things have changed, what God has done, maybe things in their lives, and you hear those stories, and all those things are encouraging, and they move us in the right direction. That example is there, so we stir up one another to love and good works. So attending Sabbath service is important for all of us. And I don't know if you can look back now to the uh, late summer of 2020 when we had our first service together over in South Carolina. If you think back about it, just if you remember how exciting that was after weeks of being apart. And yes, we were there wearing masks, but the ones we could recognize, we were happy to see. It was a special time. 
And I think it's appropriate to think about that. What was it like when we didn't have one another on a regular basis? Hopefully we're not taking it for granted today because we don't know what, what what's ahead of us yet. But hopefully their experience will help us understand how important this is. And the pandemic certainly hampered the time for God's people to be together. A difficult situation. Services were streamed over the web. And then, as I mentioned, we were finally able to have regular services again come together. And that could happen again. So... Just the thought that what we do on these matters is a matter of, but yes, certainly of individual judgment as to whether or not it's wise for us to be together. Because right now we, we have learned, I think, pretty much, that if we're sick, stay home. <laughs> that's, uh, and that's a good thing. We weren't quite as diligent about that in years past. And those with underlying serious conditions have to be more careful. And some of us still prefer to wear a mask for a good reason. And we each make that judgment individually. And yet I go through this just to point out that individual judgment and wisdom, good, and, and, and with prayer, we make the decision of do we come together or don't we? But hopefully with good judgment, when it's physically practicable to be at services, I think we should be. But if someone is concerned that that's not the wise thing to do, so be it. That's fine. But for each one of us, we need to be aware that services are commanded. And not to be here for good reason is no problem. But for those of us that can be, we should be. It's a matter of the fellowship and involves far more than just coming to Sabbath services, of course. So, again, a matter just for that matter, right now, there are, I don't know about here, maybe uh, I've talked to one or two, so maybe yes, even here. But certainly in many congregations across our country right now, de- deciding whether or not we can afford gas to get to services or not on a regular basis is an issue. I can only afford to go every other Sabbath because I don't have the money to buy the gas. That's a just that's understandable. We just have to hope that God will allow us to spend our spend time together serving Him and being together at Sabbath services. As I said, fellowship involves far more than just Sabbath service. It involves serving one another in various ways. You know, we uh, on occasion, we have individuals move from one place to another, and uh, we do have someone to coordinate assistance to that. Uh, if I, someone asks me for help, I call Mr. Crespo. <laughs> and, uh, Mr. Crespo is the man who has the the, uh, the list of names to call and, and, and garners enough support to do those that type of thing. Uh, I know you don't know this, but we have we, we've had some some babies lately. Uh, and, you know, we do have a meal train that we set up to, for a few days to help the, the new parents, the new mother, through a few, a few days. Someone's ill, we do the same sort of thing. And all those are ways we serve. Those are things that build the unity with one another. We pray for one another. We spend time in the situations that we may share with a friend. I, I need your prayers about this matter or about this situation. Spending time together outside activities, whether it's church activities or of your own making. We spend time with people of like mind. One thought occurred to me as I was putting this together. It's hard to love strangers. <laughs> we, we, sometimes we're, we pray for people we don't even know, and that's fine. But you find it easier to pray for someone you know? I do. I know them. They're friends. And our prayers for one another depend a lot on how well we share our lives together, how much fellowship is there. So we also need to consider 
that the congregation is a collection of family units. So just talk about the family for, for a few minutes. If the family is the basic unit of society, which is what we do teach, and that, that seems to be at odds with what's going on in our society right now, that the family is open for definition. So whether or not it's fundamental to society is a good society, the righteous society it certainly is. And obviously, if that's the case, it's going to be fundamental to a congregation. It's going to be fundamental to the church at large, if you will. The family needs to be a unit. Mom and dad need to be close. Husband and wife need to be close. Need to be close to their children. Spending time together as a family. Sharing meals together. We talk about just maybe someone's being able to have one meal together each day. There are people in, in our society that never have a family meal. Whether it be job conflict, school conflict, just personal choice conflict, they never get together and see each other. We are supposed to be sharing our lives as husbands and wives, parents with children, children with parents and children with one another. We'd like for all of us to be close. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, they're a nice family. And we see someone, a good family, we admire that because it's obvious that as a family they are serving God. They're learning to serve God. They're building something as a family toward God's kingdom. Uh, and, again, as I mentioned when I, at the beginning of the sermon, this is not to say the church is not united, the congregation. That's not the case. Because I've gotten comments that Charlotte is a nice congregation. <laughs> it's warm. It's welcoming. It's friendly. It's inviting. And that's exactly as it ought to be. But what makes that? It's the families, it's the individuals working together and sharing their lives together. A family, we say that's a nice family. It's harmonious, peaceful. It's obvious they get along with one another. Those kinds of things that we we want to achieve. Ephesians, I won't go turn to those things, but Ephesians chapter 5 and, and 6 and also First Peter chapter 3 talks about those things that make for a good, strong, united family. Another major point that promotes unity that I'm sure permeates, hope permeates the congregation, but I'll go through this to help us value what we have. Having a common purpose is a major component and driver of unity. Having a common purpose. And that's just one reason we hear so much about having and keeping our heart in the work of God. That's a fundamental element of our lives. That's one of the things that binds us together. We all are trying to do the work of God. Now, in the world, uh, they have this thing, whether it's be the military or even uh, sports teams or whatever, they have this thing called esprit de corps, French, some French words. Spirit of the corps. Definition, I looked it up. It says it's a feeling of pride, fellowship, and common loyalty shared by the members of a particular group. I think those words should describe us. Now, this word may be a feeling of pride, not of vanity, but a, a comfort and a joy to be part of the team that Christ and that God has called and Christ is overseeing to do his work. Uh, esprit de corps is a kind of a, a very human term. But having the Spirit of God and doing His work, that's, that's a whole other matter. 
Having that common goal ties us together. And we have more than a single purpose, if you want to look at that. It's more than just doing the work. Let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, words that we read many, many times. But think about it in this context of what makes us the people of God with one one purpose here of doing his work. But what? What does that, uh, what does that tell God about us and how does he view us? Now, in the words of Peter here in writing verse nine, but you are a chosen generation. We are handpicked to do the work of God. Mr. Weston on multiple occasions has, has used this, I think, very telling question of if God is not calling everyone, why is he calling anyone? He's calling just a few of us to do something. We have this common goal that binds us together. And in so doing, we have been become then a chosen generation, handpicked from all the peoples of the world, a royal priesthood. Do we still think of ourselves as, or do we think of ourselves as priests? Well, God uses that term. We're going to be priests and rulers, kings in his kingdom, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, his own special people. Special. Do we feel special? We are. In God's eyes, we're special. And the person sitting next to you is special. Behind you, in front of you, whatever, right or left, we are special in God's eyes. And that gives us this, hopefully, this sense of common purpose. That we're together working on bringing about the possibility in due time that Christ will return. We will do our part in getting the gospel to the world. Now, we won't finish it. Christ will finish it in his own way. But we have to do our part up until it's time for him to take over everything. And we're special in God's eyes. His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are among the very few thousands of people in the world that understand God's word. Called into the light. Just contrast that to the darkness of the world around us. Contrast that to the peoples of Ukraine right now who are trying to, some of them trying to find a piece of garbage to find a little bit of food perhaps in places. Not knowing whether the next rocket's going to shatter the building in which they're living. We've been called to another way of life and called into his marvelous light. What a grand privilege it is. We've been given a great commission. Let's turn back to John chapter 4. We put this in our World Ahead document every week. John chapter 4, verse 34. This is what Jesus was here to do. He said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And that's what we talk about doing. We have this common purpose that drives us together, pulls us together. We want to do everything we can to shore it up, to strengthen it by sharing our lives and praying for one another and doing what is pleasing in God's eyes. We are regularly admonished to do Matthew 6.33, to seek first that kingdom and the righteousness of God so that we are usable servants in his ends to do that work. And in that, that element, if you will, this part of what we're doing, there is a piece to this that I uh, occurred to me at least, that this idea of being having this common purpose, 
that we all have contributions to make, and they're different. But one feature, and a very important one, in recognizing our common purpose and how we are to go about doing this work, is that we must recognize and always be loyal to the government that God has put in the church. That we have not seen Jesus Christ. But we do know by the fruits of our lives and the nature of the work that's been going on for decades, we know that Christ is in charge. He is the head of the body. We're just part of that body. We want to be mindful of the government that he has put in place. You know, Mr. Ames has pointed out that Mr. Armstrong, his word, three words was, God reigns supreme. And we need to remember that God is in charge. Christ is over his church. He tells us back in Isaiah chapter 9, I think it's verse 6, that says his kingdom, the increase of his kingdom, his government will never end. Now, all the all that that means is yet to be understood, I believe, once we get in the kingdom. But the increase of that kingdom will never end. That government will never end. And we need to recognize that government is there. Why is that government there? Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. And talking about unity. how we want to keep adding to it, we want to enhance it, we want it to grow. Ephesians 4, verse 11, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Why did he have these offices, these positions in in his church? Verse 12, For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up, the strengthening, the fortifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith. Not just faith, but the faith. We come to the unity of God's truth and have a chance to do his work. We come to the the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 15, But speaking the truth in love, growing up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, for whom the whole body, all of us, every one of us are a piece of this body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That, that's a mouthful. That we're being under Christ, being taught and being led to being that kind of unit. That we literally share, we do our share of this building and maintaining and fortifying the unity that we're being taught to have. Doing the work of God. Now, all of that, all of these things I've talked about, again, stems back from a single source. It goes back to our fellowship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ. Just a couple of scriptures in closing. Over in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, what we're striving to, to have and is going to be part and parcel maintaining and growing and fortifying the unity of God's church and this congregation, our families and our own lives. Chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, it's talking especially about humility, but let's take that, that verse just as it is. To have the mind of Christ in all regards comes by staying close to him and sharing our entire lives with him in a prayer and Bible study. We should recognize, for that matter, we should recognize in each other God's spirit and pay due respect and give due honor to one another because he or she 
is begotten of God, just as I am. We all represent a piece of the body of Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 8. Peter writes, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Margin says, humble. But be of one mind and love as brothers. And let's go back then to John John chapter 17, in closing. John 17, verse 11. Christ is praying to the Father, of course, we know, just before his crucifixion. And he says, now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. The disciples about to become apostles and the others that were there, maybe the 120, if you will. But those of us today are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. The Father and Jesus Christ are in perfect harmony. And they always have been. They are united in purpose, in character, in righteousness. Christ said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he's praying to the Father that you and I can become as they are. And so our, our time together is precious. Our goal in being together is to become one is Jesus Christ and the Father are one. To defend, protect, nurture, and strengthen the spirit of unity that God has given us through his spirit. We want to enhance it, have it grow, because we all have a job to do. That one goal, preach the gospel of the world, the warning to Israel, the warning to the world, and then qualify for God's kingdom as a family, as a unit.